Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment of Tyre and Sidon than for you. In you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven. You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. All right, if you have a Bible close by, open it up to Luke chapter 10, that passage that DeAndre just read for us. I'm looking at a couple verses here in Luke chapter 10. If you're new to the Bible, Luke is one of the biographies of Jesus. It goes Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Your Bible might turn red. The words might turn red at that point. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 10. Most of us have probably heard this idea that communication is mostly nonverbal. Right? 90% or so is oftentimes what people say, that what you actually communicate is very little about what actually comes out of your mouth and more about uh, everything else that's going on around you. Uh, what you might not know is that idea was actually uh, proven by science uh, in the 1960s, actually by an Iranian psychologist by the name of Albert Morabian. Uh, he did a deep dive on what communication is and how it is that we communicate with one another. And here's what he found. Uh, he found that communication is 55% about what's happening with your body. Uh, so what's going on with your face and are your hands open or are they clenched? Are you uh, leaning in aggressively? Are you leaning back? Relax. 55% is that. 38% is about the tone and the pace of your voice. Am I speaking really intensely or really slowly? Am I elevated or am I kind of down low? And only 7% is the actual words that come out of our mouths. Now, because we're relational people, we understand that intuitively, instinctively. We've grown up experiencing that. And if you have been in any kind of committed relationship for any amount of time, you've experienced that reality. You know that I'm fine can take a whole host of meanings, right? It could be, I'm fine, which means really, I'm not fine, leave me alone. Or it could be, I'm fine, hey, don't worry about it, just relax, right? Because communication is so much more than just what comes out of our mouths. And what the psychologist found is that there's this reality called congruence uh, that's important in communication, that what I am saying uh, has to line up be congruent with how my body posture is, what my tone is, how quickly I'm speaking. There has to be a congruence. And when there's an incongruence, that's when communication gets confusing. When I'm telling you that I'm fine, but everything else is communicating that I'm not fine, 
That's an incongruence, and that leads to miscommunication and misunderstanding and conflict. Communication is really hard, and yet it's really important. Here's what I want us to think about this morning. If communication is actually so much nonverbal, then how should that change how we think about how we communicate or share the gospel with people? In this series, House to House, we're exploring how Jesus taught his students to share what he called the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, how he taught them to go and to invite other people into this thing. And so if communication is really so much more nonverbal and only a little bit of what we actually say, then how should that change how we think about sharing the gospel with those who are closest to us, our friends or our family members, our coworkers or our neighbors? I think for a lot of folks, the reason why there's some resistance to this idea of the gospel is actually very little about that 7% of what we say and very much about how we communicate it. You may have experienced someone trying to share the gospel with you and it just seemed incongruent. Either it was incongruent with the way that they live their lives. You say, you're communicating this gospel to me, but it doesn't seem like it lines up with how you live your life and how you've treated me in the past. Or the way in which we communicated the gospel didn't communicate the love and the care and the compassion of God, but rather it seemed kind of sales pitchy or just kind of a canned conversation. It didn't seem like you actually cared about me as a person. For a lot of folks, I think that's where their issue with the gospel stems from, is this incongruence between Christians who proclaim the gospel and the reality of their lives. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in this teaching from Jesus in Luke chapter 10. We're just going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the message. What is it that Jesus teaches his students to say? What are we supposed to say when we share the gospel? Second, we're going to look at the means. In other words, how do we communicate the gospel? How do we present it in a way that is in alignment with Jesus and his teaching? And lastly, what are the metrics? How do I know that I'm doing it right? How do I know that I have actually shared the gospel in the way that Jesus wants me to share it? So first, we're going to look at the message. What do we actually say? And I think for a lot of us, this is really where a lot of our anxiety lies when it comes to sharing the gospel, right? We can love someone really well and we can can invite them in, but then that that moment comes in and there's a question or the opportunity is there and it's like, I hope I remember what I learned in that class 10 years ago about what I'm supposed to say right in this moment. Look at verse 9 in Jesus' teaching. Again, remember, he's talking to the 72 that he is sending out. They are going to prepare the way. Uh, And here's what he says in verse 9. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, chances are, if you've gone through any sort of like evangelism class or course or training, if you've been in church for a while and we talked about how to share the gospel— Uh, oftentimes, at least in my experience, the way that we share the gospel or we're taught to share the gospel usually does not start with this idea of the kingdom of God. Oftentimes, it's about how do I answer the right question or how do I kind of move someone to a point where they understand that they're, they're, they're a sinner in need of grace. But Jesus instead begins with this idea of the kingdom of God coming near to you. In fact, this is Jesus's preferred way in all of the gospels for communicating what the gospel actually is. In Mark chapter 1, we'll have this on the screen. In Mark chapter 1, Mark begins his biography of Jesus with this verse. He says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he is sharing or proclaiming the good news, the gospel, to anyone and everyone who would hear them. And his first statement is, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, I don't know how your friend or neighbor would respond if that's how you shared the gospel with them. They might be like, okay, that's a little bit weird. Right? What are you talking about, this kingdom of God? Let's just break down what Jesus says here. Okay, in this statement, the first thing that we learn about is there's a kingdom. Uh, and that implies that there is a rule and there is a reign. Or there is a realm in which there is an authority. Uh, in fact, in their day and age, when Jesus is traveling and preaching the gospel, they would have already heard several gospels before. In fact, in 9 BC, we have evidence, inscriptions, of a gospel that was proclaimed. It was the euangelion, which is the Greek word that Jesus uses for gospel here. The euangelion, not of Jesus and the kingdom, but of Caesar. There is a euangelion that was pronounced of the birth of Caesar in 9 BC, announcing good news, euangelion, gospel has come, and there is peace on earth. But it wasn't for Jesus, it was because Caesar was born. In fact, this becomes the basis for Luke's description of how the angels announced the birth of Jesus. He's saying that there is a king that is born, and it is not Caesar, it is in fact Jesus, and with him is this kingdom. I think this is important to understand that when Jesus announces the gospel, and when he teaches his disciples to announce the gospel, he is talking about a reality, a real thing in our world, a kingdom that is coming into our world, and with it, authority and a particular way of life. It is a kingdom. Second thing we know about this is it is a kingdom of God. It is God's kingdom. It is his world, his way. You see, in this idea, the kingdom of God connects Jesus' gospel to the whole of the Old Testament, Going all the way back to the very beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world how he wants it to be. And he invites you and me to rule and reign along with him. And so by announcing the kingdom of God, what he is saying is everything that God wants in our world, everything that he created our world to be and he intended it to be, has now come into our world, it is breaking in. And God is in charge. And he is moving. And notice where he is moving towards. He is moving near us. The kingdom of God has come near. Now this implies that you and I are far from God. Right? That we are somewhere else. And yet God in his grace chooses to come towards us. He is bringing his kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness and goodness towards us. Now that implies something. That implies this, that you and I, and everyone that you and I meet, often live as if we are the kings or queens of our kingdom or our queendom. I, I act as if I'm the, in charge of my life. I'm in charge of my world. Where do I get what I want? And anyone else, right, is kind of a, a servant in my kingdom. But instead, this kingdom is God's kingdom. And so in order to get into his kingdom, in order to, to come into what he is doing, as he comes near to me in his grace... It means that I have to respond. And what is the response? To repent and to believe. To understand that when I act as if I'm the king or the queen of my kingdom or my queendom, I'm actually in rebellion. And yet God in his grace and his love 
He comes towards me, not with anger and vengeance, but with grace in the person of Jesus. You see, the last thing we have to understand about this kingdom of God is it is Jesus who brings it in. It is Jesus who brings that kingdom towards us. And so when God sends Jesus to us, he is bringing his kingdom near. And Jesus is the way by which you and I enter this kingdom. The way by, by which we experience the goodness and the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God who is the rightful king of our world. This is the kingdom of God coming near to us. This is how Jesus taught his disciples, his students, to talk about what it is that he's doing. Now, the response, repent and believe. Each and every one of us has to do this. We have to repent because we live as if we're the king or as if we're the queen. And to believe is then to step into that kingdom and to follow Jesus, our rightful king. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus proclaims and he invites us to share with us. Now, if you've been in evangelism training over the past couple of decades, oftentimes we tend to lean towards the repent and believe part of evangelism instead of first inviting people into the kingdom of God. Right? We, we tend to kind of say, okay, how do I get people to understand that they are sinners? And yes, that is built into what Jesus is saying here. And, and then how do I get people to raise a hand or respond in a particular kind of way through a prayer or through a response card? We tend to kind of lean on how do I get people to respond? And notice that, yes, there is a response to the gospel, but the gospel is the announcement of God bringing his kingdom in Jesus. And as I understand that, then I repent of my sins, repent of being the king or queen of my world, and then I believe Jesus and follow his way. Now, this is really important. It's so important, I mean, Jesus, this was the gospel that he preached. And so, yes, each one of us repents and believes, but the gospel is that God's kingdom is coming into our world through Jesus. And now I have to respond in faith and trust. And this is why this matters, right? Because if we, don't if we miss this, we will emphasize conversion over discipleship, right? Where we will kind of emphasize, okay, how many people can respond to this message? How many people can raise their hand or sign a card or, or check the box to say, yes, I, I believe that thing at that one event that I went to. But rather, the kingdom is an all-encompassing, all-of-life kind of thing. And so what Jesus wants is not just how many people converted to whatever the thing is, but how many people are walking in the kingdom. How many people are pursuing him and his way in the world that we live in. So oftentimes we will kind of emphasize or lean onto how many conversions did we get rather than how many disciples are being made. How many people are actually walking into the kingdom. The other reason why this is really important is because we live in a hyper-individualistic world. Right? Where, where everyone, and a hyper-ideological world, where everyone is trying to sell some sort of idea to you. Right? And so if we're not careful, the way that we present the gospel can oftentimes just emphasize our hyper-individualism. But rather, the kingdom is an invitation into a whole community and a whole way of life that Jesus is starting, that Jesus is bringing us into. And the other thing, I think sometimes we can make salvation an internal reality, that I just sort of changed some internal ideas that I had, but my external life doesn't have to change. But that's not how Jesus talked about the gospel or the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is an all-encompassing thing. And so I live as if Jesus is king. I live in a particular kind of way that is oriented around him and his way of life. And so, yes, when we're communicating the message of the gospel, we are inviting people and telling people that they need to repent and believe the gospel. But that gospel is the kingdom of God coming near to you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the message that we share to people 
as we follow Jesus, to share the good news. The good news that even though I'm a sinner, even though I'm a rebel, king, or queen, I am made new in his kingdom through his death on the cross in my place. He is my king, and so I live in his kingdom. And so if that's the message, how do we communicate that message? Right, that's a whole lot. You say, okay, you're just a chemist to explain that. I'm over coffee with my friend. How, how in the world am I supposed to summarize what you just said? Jesus said the kingdom of God has come near to you. Right, the means by which we communicate the gospel is primarily through hospitality. Right, if the message is that the kingdom of God has come near, if God sent his son Jesus to us in our sin and our rebellion, then it would make sense that the congruent message that lines up with that is that we move near to people we move proximate to people. In fact, this is Jesus' primary way of sharing the gospel. In Luke chapter 7, just a few chapters before this, Jesus says this. He's talking to people who criticized him. And he said this, the son of man, that's his reference for himself, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is how Jesus communicated or shared the gospel, by moving towards people and by eating and drinking with people. I mean, when was the last time you went through an evangelism class or you went through an evangelism training and they said, you know what your reputation should be in the neighborhood? You should be known as the glutton who throws the parties. But that was how Jesus was known. Why? Because he was always hosting a table or a gathering where people from all sorts of suspicious backgrounds were gathered because the kingdom of God was coming near to them. This is how Jesus communicated the gospel. And so look at what he teaches his students to do. We're just going to look through these verses real quickly. Verse 4, he says this, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Uh, so he's saying don't take provisions for yourself. Don't take a bag. The knapsack would oftentimes be like a beggar's bag where you'd be like asking for funds. Don't worry about that. He's saying keep your eyes focused on who you're going to go to. And don't even bring anything. Verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. So notice we approach people with a blessing or a benediction. That we come to them announcing peace. I'm not here to fight. I'm not here to, to get into an argument. I'm here to announce the peace of God. But also, built into this, is this idea that, that don't impose yourself on people. Right? He says, if they receive you, great. If they don't receive you, if the door isn't open, don't keep standing there knocking. Move on. God has clearly not led you to that person. The emphasis is on who is open and available to you. Look at verse 7. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages, do not go from house to house. The emphasis is not on how many numbers or how many houses you can sit in, but rather who is open to you and the patience and the time and the presence that it takes for you to build a relationship and for them to be open to hearing the gospel. This is not about pumping up the numbers. This is about being present with people in their need and in their questions. Look at verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. This is a scandalous teaching for Jesus. In that day and age, who belonged was determined by what you ate and who you ate with. 
If you wanted to be super kind of up, uh, like the good people, you only ate clean food with clean people. You made sure you knew, okay, what marketplace did you buy this in? And, and how did you handle it? And, and did you wash your hands before you, we probably should ask that question. Did you wash your hands before you prepared this meal, right? But the idea of being clean was that you had to follow a certain set of guidelines. And, and, and whoever you ate with, you wanted to make sure that they were all on the same page. Because if you ate with someone, if you were gathered around the table with someone and they were unclean, it meant that you were unclean. And so there's this huge like, hierarchy built around who was gathered around your table and who was not welcome around your table and what did you eat and what did you not eat. And what does Jesus say? Eat whatever is set before you. You're like, but what about that thing? Eat whatever is set before you. What if I don't like it? Eat whatever is set before you. And all the parents said, amen. Right? The, the idea, right, is that we should be more concerned with are we making space for people to join us around the table? Or are we willing to meet them around their table than whether we do what we want to do or we eat what we want to eat? Jesus is less concerned with the clean and unclean laws of his day. Instead, he says, go to people. Wherever they are, be with them. And so we move towards them. And then verse 9, he says, heal the sick in it. Minister to people. Meet tangible needs. And then say to them, the kingdom of God has come near. Because by the time you get to that, people know the kingdom of God has come near. Right? I, I've seen it. You welcomed me around the table. You, you've healed. You've ministered. You've been present to me. The kingdom of God has come near. I, I understand that now. Because I've seen it. I've been experiencing it around the table. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to share the gospel. Through this practice of hospitality, of an open table. Now, in order for us to do this, we have to, we have to talk about a couple things. The first is we have to talk about how we think about our homes. Because for a lot of us, we tend to think of our homes as a haven. Uh, what I mean by that is like, like uh, this picture here. I, got, I think I got a picture of, uh, of uh, Locke. Right? We tend to think of our homes as a haven. And what I mean by that is like our home is like our castle or our refuge. And so I get up in the morning and I, I prepare myself for the battles of the day. I drink enough coffee or espresso so I'm going to be able to deal with it. And then I leave my house. I lock my door. I arm my security system, I get in my car, and I go to work, or I go to campus, or I go to class, or I go to the neighborhood, and I fight my battles against my boss, or my teacher, or my neighbor, and then I come home, I disarm my security system, I unlock my door, park my car in the garage, close the garage door, lock the door, arm the security system, and turn on Netflix. That's how we tend to think about our homes. Is it's a place where I can go to be safe from people. And now here's the thing, it's not wrong to feel safe in your home, right? It's important to feel safe in your home. But oftentimes what happens, and I know this because I'm guilty of this, right, is we're in our homes and the doors are locked, the windows are locked, the security system, and you're just peeking through the blinds at your neighbor's drama. I do this all the time, I'm really bad at this. But like, and so they're out there and I'm in here. And I'm not going to open the door because this is my haven. That's not how Jesus views homes. Remember last week he said, I don't have a home. He's dependent on the hospitality of other people, right? And so we have to shift our thinking about what's the purpose of my home? What do I look for when I'm buying a home? Am I looking for how far away from people can I get? How comfortable can I be on the inside of my house 
so that I don't have to deal with people. That's not how Jesus views our homes. Our homes are intended to be a place of hospitality. Now, the other thing that happens then when we begin thinking about that is we begin to think about this person uh, up here on the screen, Martha Stewart. Or if that's, that's like a generation ago, maybe like Chip and Joanna Gaines. Right? We have this idea that hospitality means a seven-course meal. It means that I need to clean the bathroom and clean the kitchen and clean the living room and clean the kids and clean the husband and then make the house all nice and pretty so that when I'm ready, then I open the door and what am I really doing? I'm entertaining people. I want you, and there's a little bit of element of like, I'm kind of performing. I want you to like appreciate the the seven course meal that I made. I want you to compliment how nice my kids are behaved. I want you to like take a picture of, of the table spread and post it on Instagram so that you can see just how good of a host I am. That's not hospitality. I first, I kind of really confronted this uh, when my wife and I were registering for our wedding registry. Uh, we went to Bed Bath & Beyond, RIP Bed Bath & Beyond. Uh, but when you, when you go there, they give you this little scanner and then they give you like a, a shopping assistant. And at first I thought the shopping assistant was there to, make, to help me like, make decisions. I soon realized that they were only there to help me buy more things. Right? But we're like in Bed Bath & Beyond and there's this like 14-foot wall with 100 different types of fabrics on it. And, and all these fabrics are different types of napkins. And if you love napkins, I'm, this is not a criticism, but like that's a lot of napkins. This is more fabric than I have in my closet. But, but the, she started talking about how you need like your everyday place setting, uh, like, like the, what you're going to just eat off of regularly. And then you need like your fine china and your fine napkins uh, because that's what you bring out when people are over. And so you need a set of like 12 of each of those. And I'm like, I don't, you don't, you haven't seen my dining room, right? But like, I realized, man, there's a, a value difference there. Because if that's what we think of when we think of hosting or hospitality, it will always require me to have a a certain size house or a certain degree of wealth and privilege or a certain certain culinary ability or or a certain ability to to be impressive. But what does Jesus say? Don't take anything with you. Just go and meet people where they are. Go and open up your life where people are. And so when I think hospitality, I think of this. Uh, this is a 50-cent plate from Target. All right, a couple, a couple years ago when we were hosting, uh, doing more like hospitality, uh, we realized we were either just burning through paper plates, which is bad for the environment, right? or we would have like these like, like glass plates. And so, so what we realized is like Target sells these for like 50 cents. We bought a huge stack of them. And like you can drop these, you can throw these, that probably would function as a Frisbee. This one has a slash across it from a pizza cutter. This is what biblical hospitality looks like. It's not a performance. It's not trying to be something. It's everyday, ordinary openness to people. It's saying, how can I make space in my life? How can I make space in my home? How can I make space in my attention? in my presence, so that people can come in and experience hospitality. And here's the important thing to get. You'll see it up there on the screen. The, the word for hospitality in the New Testament is actually a compound word. 
It, the first half of the word is philo, which means love. You can think Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. The second half of the word is xenos, which is the word for stranger or foreigner or alien. Think about where we get the idea of xenophobia, being afraid of people who are different than me. And so hospitality in the way of Jesus is love, not for my best friends or for the people that I love hanging out with, but for the people who are different than me, the people who are other than me, the people that the world would tell me to be afraid of, people who believe differently than me. These are the ones that I'm called to love in the way of Jesus. I was reading one author this past week. He said, Christian evangelization cannot take place where there is limited seating or where the table has been fashioned in such a way as to reinforce social privilege and hierarchy. This means that at, at times, evangelists must of necessity be troublemakers. Jesus got in trouble for the people that he spent meals with. As you think about opening your home, opening space in your life, right, what does this actually look like? Right, the moment that you start planning a big, long checklist of these are all the things that I'm supposed to do, you're probably moving more into hosting than hospitality. Hospitality is saying, what am I already doing? And how can I invite people into that ordinary stuff? And you don't have to have a big home to do this. You can do this in your apartment. You can do this by inviting a coworker to lunch who often gets ignored. You can do this on campus by talking with someone after class who usually is kind of off on their own. Hospitality is not just about a meal, although it often is, but it's about how do I invite people in to relationship and proximity and care and the kingdom of God. You see, it could be that our everyday ordinary meals, the most mundane ordinary meal that you could make when you invite others around the table who do not yet know who Jesus is, the kingdom of God is coming in that space. And you think it's just some tacos or it's just some chili. God's moving in that space. As we join him, in his mission of drawing near to people. And so this is not about creating an overly complicated thing on your calendar. It's about saying, what am I already doing? What is the everyday, ordinary stuff? If I'm eating a meal on Tuesday, who can I invite over? If I'm hosting a birthday party next weekend for my kid, how can I invite my neighbor in rather than just the people that I prefer to hang out with? Who is God leading me to right now? And as we do this, how do we know that this is going to work? How do we know that we're doing this right? How do I know that my chili and conversation around my dinner table is actually the thing that Jesus wants me to do? Look at what he says in verse 10. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust, dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Jesus is saying, if someone rejects you, don't carry that with you. Right? That's the point of like dusting your feet off. It's like if, this, if, 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 I, if I try this and someone, someone doesn't get on board with it, it's okay. Right? Don't allow the, the, the residue of, of resentment or bitterness or anger to build up. Instead, say, okay, who is God leading me to next? And notice what he says, even if they reject you, the kingdom of God has still come near. 
that their response is not determinative of whether the kingdom of God has in fact come near. The question is rather, was I faithful to do what Jesus told me to do? Was I faithful to extend the invitation? Was I faithful to open up my dining room table? Was I faithful to invite my neighbor into my kid's birthday party? Was I faithful? Not that it work. You see, so often we get into this sense of it only matters if it worked, but that's not what Jesus says. The metric of success is faithfulness. And if I am faithful, the kingdom has come close to that person and their response is not my fault. It's not because of me. Something else is going on. And there's a surprise to this as well that challenges our our thinking. Look at verse 13. It says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now, you have to know geography to understand what Jesus is saying here. Tyre and Sidon, these ones that, that he said would be more likely to repent. In the Old Testament, these were Israel's worst neighbors. They were to the north of them, just to the north of them, and they were mean, they were violent, they were oppressive, they were exploitative. And yet Jesus is saying, Tyre and Sidon are more likely to respond to the gospel than Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Chorazin. You know who's from those towns? Jesus, Peter, Philip, Andrew, some of Jesus' core disciples. Bethsaida and Capernaum were in the people of God. They were in the country of God. And yet Tyre and Sidon are to the north. They're not in the people of God. And yet he says they are more likely to respond than these folks who think they're in. See, the surprising thing about sharing the gospel is that according to Jesus, it is not the people that you and I assume will be most likely to respond who will respond. It will oftentimes be the people that you think might be the worst neighbors in your neighborhood. Or that house down the street that everyone kinds of, kind of ignores or avoids. It is not the people who look like they have their life all together who, who we should go after because we think they're the easy ones who will respond to the gospel. No, it is the folks who are on the outside, who are often overlooked or judged or, or even seen as bad neighbors, that those are the ones that Jesus said are more likely to respond to the gospel as we draw near to them than those that we think are just pretty nice neighbors if they just had a little bit more Jesus in them. See, this totally changes our metrics. Or who should I invite around the table? Who is it that's going to respond to the gospel? You see, it could be that in our world today, someone rejecting the gospel means that you've actually shared the gospel well. Right? Because for the past several generations, it's been possible to be sort of vaguely culturally Christian. And so if someone said, do you believe the gospel? Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I, I, I believe some things about Jesus. But if someone actually rejects the gospel that you shared because you've shared it how Jesus teaches you to share it, and you're not being weird or a jerk along the way if you're just sharing the gospel, that means you probably have shared the gospel well. Because for several generations, it's been possible to be a Christian yet not believe in the gospel, at least in our country, in our culture. But instead, if I share the gospel and they reject it, that might mean I did it well. And so I should walk away encouraged, however they responded. But also that those who I think would be least likely to respond 
if I brought them around my table, and if I healed them, or cared for them, or ministered to them, that they might actually respond to the gospel of Jesus. And that would surprise me more than anything else. Because this is how God's kingdom works. And so Jesus says in verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. We shouldn't be surprised if someone doesn't want the gospel. Because after all, they rejected Jesus. And yet there's that one that God's put on your heart this year. Or that one family or that one house in your neighborhood that you're thinking, God, what would it look like if your kingdom came near? You know, sometimes I think we're waiting for God to just bring this like lightning bolt opportunity into our, into our day. Like there's going to be a moment where I'm leaving my driveway and all of a sudden my neighbor's out there and it's just going to lead to this moment. And yes, that sometimes happens, but sometimes God is waiting for us to open up our table and to make the opportunity and to invite the person in so that we can care for them and that we can share the gospel to them. And we never know what God might do through that. But if we don't open up our doors or our tables or our homes, we might never find out. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that the gospel is for everyday ordinary people like us. That your kingdom came near to us. And we heard it. We heard of Jesus' death in our place. We heard of his kingdom. And we said yes. God, for the one who's here this morning, and maybe they've been living as if they're their own king or their own queen of their own world. How would you show them the goodness of Jesus who came to bring the kingdom, who died to make enemies his friends? God, would you give us the courage and boldness to open up our tables, to open up our homes, to open up our backyards so that we might invite people in and that you would use us to share the good news of the gospel with them. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.